huge news, years in the making, my brand new book that my publishers refuse to publish, Money Matrix. Beat the money system and build generational wealth. Understand the three main ways that the banks productize you and make money from you. You'll be able to turn that system against itself, build generational wealth and multiple streams of recurring income. It's all at moneymatrix.cash. And if you're quick, the first few hundred registrants and buyers will receive many special bonuses from me. The brand new Moneymaker Summit three-day special event. Meet me at a champagne reception. Meet me at a multi-millionaire networking dinner. Go now, moneymatrix.cash. This is huge. Welcome to the Disruptive Entrepreneur Podcast. What does the word disruptive mean to you? It means going beyond the ordinary, going beyond the status quo. Not thinking in the conventional way, not just sort of following the herd. Disruptive means taking things up, you know? Disruptive entrepreneur is somebody who sees the problem and embraces the problem with a new way. Shake up and awakening. Quality will take care of itself and you'll go from being disruptive but also profitable. When you use your own reservoir of talent, when you love what you do, then you disrupt. Mix it up, change it up and dominate. And now, your host, eight times best-selling author and double world record holder, Rob Moore. Hi, it's Rob Moore here, and welcome to the Disruptive Entrepreneur Podcast. It's an interview episode. And in about 2008, uh, I was a member and mentor of the Peter Jones Academy. So Peter Jones from Dragon's Den is very inspired to help uh, young entrepreneurs. And I was a part of that program and one of the mentors, as was and still is the man who you are about to hear an interview with. So this is Mike Clare. He's probably most well known for starting the Dreams Beds business. That grew to over 200 stores across the UK. Um, I won't give you all the secrets just yet because I'll let him explain that. But he sold the company in what, after 21 years of setting it up in around about 2007, just before the recession, for a massive lump of money, which he then tattooed on his backside, as he will tell you. Um, And then once he did that, Um, He's got various property companies that he's set up. He has his own foundation. He supports and advises other charities. Um, He owns luxury properties. He owns um, country manors, Scottish castles. He owns an abbey, a chateau, a sea fort. Um, He's definitely a very diverse business owner. Uh, And um, we went into lots of detail about his story, building and then selling uh, the Dreams Beds business and then some of his sort of quite unique takes on on business uh, and then more into his current ventures and how he thinks entrepreneurs should live their life, hire staff, manage people, etc. It's a very uh, varied interview. I hope you'll love it. I think you'll love it. Um, Seriously, like 100 millionaire plus interview with Mike Clare. Mike, thanks for doing the podcast. Yeah, it's a pleasure. Do you remember the very first time in your life where you did something entrepreneurial or someone said, oh, he's got the flair in him to be an entrepreneur? Um, I think most entrepreneurs remember things at school when they, you know, have done something, buying and selling something. Mm. I did, you know, I used to buy and sell bikes. I used to do them up, actually. I was more like a mechanic. I put new pedals on and brakes and things like that. And then I got progressed into buying a couple of old hopeless bikes and making one good one, um, which I suppose is a bit entrepreneurial. Mm. Uh, I used to buy and sell LPs, you know. You wouldn't yeah. know what they were, but they were big. <laughs> I love vinyl. Big, I love big vinyl, vinyl things. Um, and are you talking teenage years here? No, no, no. This was, this was at, uh, uh, sort of, uh, I'm 14, 15 or something. Oh, right. I'll be doing that. Um, you know, I used to um, 
my mum used to make me sandwiches. I used to sell my sandwiches and buy sweets because, you know, I don't know why, that's because I'm fat, basically, but I used to sell my sandwiches. I can't believe that I could do that. And then I would use that money to buy sweets. Um, what did I, I remember getting my first five pound note when I was about like eight or nine. When they were like that big. Yeah, no, well, not quite, I'm not that quite that old. But I did, um, no, I sold a puppet. I did, you know, like these puppets like this. Yeah. I can't remember I sold it. It wouldn't have been eBay. I don't know how I sold it. Yeah. Local paper or something, but I sold it. And a, a stranger came around and bought it and I had five pounds. And my brother, who's two years older than me, he's quite an influence in my life. Yeah. Um, I had a fiver before him. Yeah. So a five pound note. Because that, that a lot, must have felt like a lot of money. It was, it was, yeah. So, yeah, it's... I mean, I, I, I tell the story. My mother used to run a stationery store. My, my father ran a printing business. They were quite entrepreneurial. So both my parents had their own businesses. And um, she had an account with a local book of cash and carry. So that's the, the local place where you mm. people would go and buy things. And uh, I used to, when I was at college, go and buy a gross. Do you know what a gross is? No. A gross is 144. Right. See, that's old-fashioned old stuff. Yeah. But anyway, 144, and uh, why they were like that? Condoms. They were jerks. There's no <laughs> other mate. I would buy 140, and I'd sell them individually at college. And I used to have my locker, um, which had a serious padlock on it, and people used to come to me. I was a condom dealer <laughs> at Wickham College. And people would come to me and they didn't want to go down to a chemist or well, then no, there was no yeah. really it wasn't really machines, but I yeah. realised there was a bit of a market in condoms and you know, I used to know what everyone was up to. And mm. Yeah, no. So yeah, I think we've all done that sort of thing, haven't mm. we? And where do you think it came from? You know, like do you think it was born in you? Was there some you know, like something that you were making up for? I'll give you a good example. A good friend of mine, Neville Wright, sold Kitty Care for you know, decent money, like probably nearly 100 million. He's worth a good couple hundred million. And he was really dyslexic and he felt like quite ostracised at the back of the class. And he, he says he made up for it in the playground by going out and selling stuff because that's where he felt good. Did do you have any kind of that story or was it just something that just seemed natural to you to go out and sell stuff? Because a lot of people don't even like selling. Uh, my driving thought, I think most people, entrepreneurs, have got something inside them that clicks. Mm. It's not about making money. I mean... It, they say it's about making money, and, and it seems like about making money, but I quite often think it's recognition. Mm. So whether money's a measurement and you've got a fast car and lovely holidays or whatever, but it's about proving to someone that you're, you've been successful. Yeah. It's about proving success. And was there anyone um, in particular you wanted well, to... Well, my brother was two years older than me. He went to Cambridge University. He, right. was, he got six A-levels, uh, uh, went to a grammar school in Wickham, and you know, he, was, he was clever, mm. ultra cl sort of clever, really, and... Um, I was two years younger than him, so I followed in his footsteps. And I, I didn't pass the 11 plus, I didn't go to grammar school, didn't go to university. And, and I was, everyone always just thought, in comparison, I was thick. I wasn't actually thick, I was average, mm. but he was uh, very clever. So I was always trying to beat my brother at something. So he was my driving force to, right. to be better. And, um, you know, the only things I could beat him at were sort of Monopoly and table tennis. And, <laughs> and I, we used to play a lot of that. So he, I, I, and... And that's why I wanted a better car, a better house than my brother, because mm. he was older than me and he was academically clever. But I think most entrepreneurs, I, th I think, are driven by someone telling them that they're thick or stupid at school or their parents or their teacher or someone, and, and they, they're rebelling against that and they're trying to prove themselves. Mm. And it, that's a great way, isn't it, to take, I wouldn't say pain, but something in your life that isn't fulfilled and turn it into something good. Yeah, a lot of entrepreneurs have lost their parents when they're young, haven't they? Mm. It's a very common thing. Most entrepreneurs, or not most, but a lot are dyslexic uh, and they have a, a, a different sense of understanding things. Mm. And also, a lot of entrepreneurs are, uh, have, have, have had a tragedy in their early life 
And I think that spurred them on to try and to, to do something about it. Mm. So what was your first, what you might regard as a, a real business, a proper business? Um, and I tried you? all this sort of stuff. Yeah. So I, I didn't start Dreams until I was 30, but mm. before Dreams, and everyone thinks I was very successful on that, and that's great. But there were about sort of five or six things that never really got off the ground mm. because I never really invested in them properly. I, I started them for my bedroom and, and always did the logo first and got excited about how it would look. Yeah. And then, you know, tried you to work a bit mean? of a, a business plan. Yeah. And then, you know, and there was all sorts of things, but I never really committed. I never gave up my day job, um, and, uh, but they were just ideas. So I always wanted to start my own business and I would see a need. I thought of these things, um, condensation balls, which is what I registered it as. Uh, uh, and, you know, you get steamy windows and you can have these things that attract all the moisture and mm. you don't get steamy windows. And, and I went to some chemical company and bought this funny chemical that did this and put them into tubs that collected the water. And that was that. Was that. And then I did Desk Trunking, which was a company that... You know, when PCs and computers were first coming out, everyone had their wires everywhere. And I'd go in and I had people that would drill people's desks and put, like, rubber sort of trunking underneath mm. so they tidied their wires up. But before everyone did it, did it now. Yeah. And um, what else did I do? Housing list, which was listing out all the houses that were available in any one town. That was before Zoopla and mm. everything like that. This is all sort of 80s stuff. And nowadays, when you say you talk about a business, you say, well, it's been done. But, you know, mm. I'm talking about prior, this was in, in, in the 80s. So, uh, yeah, no, I'd come up with lots of ideas, but never really got off the ground because I sort of like had the idea, got excited about it, and then never had the guts to start it properly. Right. And I think, you know, businesses are only really successful if everything's on the line. Yeah. So when I came up with the idea, which was sofa beds before Dreams, um, I decided I got to commit. It was 30, my wife was pregnant, which was a really bad time. I had a mortgage, but in the end, I knew I had to force myself to be massively vulnerable if it didn't succeed. Yeah. So, and is that so that you get rid of all plan Bs and just get rid of any doubt and you just have to go for it? Is that the reason why? I think it just makes make sure the, the, the option. So, so uh, you, you know, I reckon I always worked out I needed about £20,000 to start. And, you know, a business plan and things like that. And, you know, I had about £2,000. Yeah. Um, so I sold my car, I borrowed some money on my Barclay card or Visa, whatever it was called then, and... Said it was for doing up a kitchen, and then you know I got to about eight thousand pounds, and um, sort of borrowed, uh, or, or and selling my car, and then the bank would always match whatever you'd got. So I used to go to Lloyd's Bank then, and they'd say, "Yep, yeah, well if you save that much, as long as you put your house in security, whatever you know equity you've got left in your house after your mortgage as security, we'd match it." So I had eight, so that made sixteen. And really, I've only got two, but I'm sort of looking at 16, yeah. and 16's near 20 if you're an entrepreneur, isn't it? So, yeah, you know, quite <laughs> yeah. close. So, yeah. away I go. And, you know, and yeah. that's, that's how it started. Um, uh, but you had your, your house on the line. So, you knew that if it didn't succeed, in theory, you'd lose your house, mm. then everything would sort of tumble down. And, you know, I'd got started a family. So you had to get up on a Sunday morning, you know, and you had to do everything. You were all in. Yeah, yeah, that's it. They, yeah. But I sometimes think if I hadn't have had that, and some entrepreneurs like to keep it easy and say, I'll just invest some of my savings mm. in starting this business. When the, the shit hits the fan and things really go bad, which they do, you have bad times, then they just give up because yeah. they think, oh, no, okay, it's all gone wrong. Yeah. Never mind, I've lost that, sort of, that investment and that saving. But if everything, your life is dependent on it, 
you somehow got some extra energy from somewhere yeah. and you make it happen. So it's risky, but, but mm. you, you do sort of find some sort of extra power to make it work. Mm. I suppose that's tricky. Um, you know, when you're trying to help young entrepreneurs, because on the one hand, you want them to be committed. Yeah. But you kind of can't say, look, get to the worst point in your life, yeah, get yeah. rid of everything, sell everything, put your mortgage, your kids, yeah, yeah. your lifestyle on the line. Um, but I think that's a nice message for people who are struggling, because a lot of people struggle and just think, well, if I had a bit more money, if I had a bit more time. Um, but you're saying that you've, you know, you've done, you've created your best business when you had the most on the line. Well, yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, Always bad things happen, you know, and people think, you know, when you look at the thing and I started and I hadn't I got one store and I built it up to 200 stores and thousands of employees and I wasn't really successful and how clever was I and all of that. But, you know, no one talks about all the shit that happened along the way and all the, the times that we nearly went bust and, you know, the warehouse roof leaked and the computers would crash and, you know, things that you they don't write about in business books would go wrong. Yeah. Like, you know, like... um. Uh, you know, tramps used to piss in our shop doorways and <laughs> the competitors would super glue our locks and, yeah. you know, uh, gypsies used to camp in our car park and, uh, you know, the HR director had an affair with the receptionist. Well, you know, how, how do you... Yeah. Where does it say in the management books how to deal with those <laughs> sort of problems? Yeah. It, uh, but you've got to always, you know, it tells you how to deal with cash flow and write a business plan, yeah. but not with really weird, unforeseen problems and hurdles. But every business, I believe, has these things that are going to go wrong in their, yeah. in their life or in their business. Uh, and it's being about determined to overcome problems. Yeah. Well, we can change that in a minute because I'd okay. like to uh, uh, talk about some okay. of those stories. I think, you know, there's a lot of theory books out there, isn't there? There's a lot of sort of, you know, courses you can do and d degrees and accreditations you can mm. get. Um, I really think about business as going from one problem to another, to another, to another. And I think Churchill says, doesn't he, um, go from challenge to challenge without the loss of enthusiasm. Yep. Uh, and also, you know, we, I think a lot of people perceive, oh, well, I'll solve a problem I shouldn't have anymore, I shouldn't have one again. I just think business is about you solve a problem, so you've earned the right for a bigger one now. Mm. You solve the bigger one, you've earned the right for a bigger one. And they don't go away, they just keep getting bigger. Yeah. And so you just get good at solving the problems, and I think that's where you have the value. It's persistence. So I talk about... And people ask me, and I'm sure most entrepreneurs all, how are you successful? As if there's some magic answer. Mm. The, the, the biggest one answer is you've got to work hard, yeah. which people don't like because they sort of want a, a secret door, mm. a way to, to make it happen <laughs> without working hard. But it is mostly about working hard. Yeah. Um, but I always talk about my P's, and it's about, I don't know, people and profit and, and things. But one of my P's is about perseverance. And, you know, just as you said, you know, when one problem is overcome, there's another problem. You've just got to persevere, persevere, persevere. Mm. So before we go on to the good sides then, uh, <laughs> tell us about some of the biggest challenges you had uh, growing. Actually, just before that, can you give us the headline figures? Like when did you sell it? You're allowed to say how much you sold it for, for people who don't know. Um, yeah, sold it in March 2008, so timing is everything. So yeah. that's just before the big stock market crashed and, and you know, 2008 disaster. Mm. And that was when 10% uh, taper relief was still in. Yeah. And it was just about to be abolished in 5th of April 2008. Right. So I sold it in March. So, you know, hugely uh, important timing. Yeah. And, um, you know, I think I used to have a restriction with the private equity company that bought the, the business, said we weren't allowed to say what we sold it for but because, you know... I don't know, I th I, but I'm sure that time's run out now. It must be 10 years, mm. it's 10 it years is, later. Yeah, no, it is 10 years. So you're allowed to say how much? Yeah, it's 222 million. So, yeah. you know, and there's quite a story about why it's 222 and, and there was, you know, it was quite a, a sort of a thing about that. And, uh, you know, my, my 
mobile telephone number has got 222 in it. Right. Uh, and, um, you know, my registration number, because 222 represents ZZZ. So Dream's logo used to be Z, uh, three Zs. Yeah. So, and, um, uh, and it was like a Feng Shui sort of fatalistic sort of reason that three Zs and three twos matched. Yeah. And we got very near it and I negotiated my last couple of million on the fact that it right. needed to match the Z. So that was what you no, had none in your of head. Well, yeah, that, yeah, that, well, you know, I had a lesser number in my head, but, you know, we, we, we got to two to two. Mm. In fact, I've got a tattoo on my ass, actually. <laughs> uh, we, won't, we won't have a look at that, then. No, I'll well. take your word for it. And um, were you the main shareholder? Were there other shareholders? No, no I was the only shareholder, really. Right. Uh, and, you know, over 21 years, it's actually quite a challenge because lots of people come knocking at the door, whether it's other directors or you know, other companies and, and they want a slice of the cake when they know mm. you're successful. Yeah. And to keep hold of uh, share, shares is really important. One of my entrepreneur books there is, well, one of my biggest heroes is Felix Dennis. He's, yeah. he's sadly passed away yes. now. Yeah. And, and he wrote a book about entrepreneurship and various different chapters and he's slightly eccentric and mm. writes poetry. Yeah. And one of the things is he said, uh, in, in the, you look in the contents and it says uh, a chapter about, sh about sharing equity. Yeah. And you think, oh, yeah, sharing equity. I'll look that up. So you turn to this chapter, and it's just got one word in the chapter. It says, don't. <laughs> That's it. It's yeah. just, just don't. Yeah. Uh, and I think that was it. So, yeah, so, so you didn't started with 100%, yeah. and then I sold it still. still. Well, actually, I say 100%. I had 95%. My wife had 5%. Yeah. But you didn't, so therefore you didn't raise finance to grow it? You didn't pull in it external no, capital? No, I, I used to borrow some money. Originally, I had an overdraft. Yeah. But, you know, it, it, it become, so, you know, I didn't really take any money out. So when I sold the business in 2008, people think, oh, you had loads of money, Mike, and things like that. Yeah, the, you know, the first thing I did when I sold, sold the business that week is I, I paid my mortgage off. Mm. So I lived in a house in Beaconsfield, um, you know, a couple of miles away from here, and um, I still had a mortgage. Mm. So people would say, well, why would you have a mortgage on a house if, you know, if you were worth that much? Well, it's because... All my money was tied up in dreams in one business, mm. and I hadn't stripped any money out, which, you know, so my, all my life, my work and everything was invested into one business. Yeah. How did you feel the day you sold it? Um, yeah, pretty, pretty good. Yeah. We couldn't tell anyone for, so we sold it at 11 o'clock on a Friday night on the 7th of March 2008, and then uh, we weren't allowed, to, we had an embargo on telling any landlords or press or staff or landlords or suppliers or anything until 9 o'clock Monday morning. Right. And, um, you know, so I had this weekend where I couldn't tell anyone, but, you know, it's <laughs> yeah. nine o'clock Monday morning. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, we had a secret party with some good friends right. on a Sunday. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, yeah, no, it's... That's interesting. Life-changing, really. Yeah. Like a bereavement, because I, I didn't do an earn-out. I had to leave. Yeah. Uh, and um, made a speech. It was very emotional. Um, so it wasn't just... You didn't just feel good then. There was some... No, no, no. Yeah, I felt good. Or... More good than anything yeah. else. But there was a lot of emotion because I love that business. I still do and mm. own the head office and, and, you know, there's a lot of great stuff. But, um, you know, that was my baby and I, and I still sort of think it's my baby, really. Yeah. And I used to talk about having five children. I've got four real children yeah. and, and Dreams is my fifth child and I felt I conceived them all and I named them all and I brought them all up. And, yeah. you know, it's like I spent more time with Dreams than my other four children, to <laughs> yeah. be honest. yeah. And because um, it's it, Neville Wright, who sold Kitty Car, he said to me the day he sold his company was the worst day of his life, pretty mm. much. And he really regretted it. 
Um, I think maybe because the company that bought it kind of ran it into the ground. Were you able to just then detach because it's your baby, but now you've sold it and you, you, you know, you're not well, involved I, in it anymore? I put 20 million back into the business and, um, uh, you, you know, which then that, that money is uh, in someone else's hands, really, yeah. uh, this, this new private equity company. And, but the rest of my team that I'd worked with and developed and bought on were still running the business, so I had a bit of faith with, with that. Um, but eventually they overexpanded and, um, uh, you know, they sort of run it into the ground after five years. But now a new private equity company owned Dreams and, and it's done really well. So it's, it's developed, it's back on its feet and it's back to where it was when I sold it. Mm. And so if you were looking back, what were you, would you say are the, the main skills that enabled you to grow that business? Because I, it is very impressive, and I know you're very humble, Mike, but it's very impressive to grow a business to that size in that time without external capital. Because all the big companies nowadays, they're getting billions pumped in from yeah, yeah. VCs and angels and, you know, they're... Um, all these billions, even pre-revenue sometimes, they put mostly, hundreds of millions. Mostly pre, yeah. pre-profit anyway. So yeah. I look at some of these mattress in the box companies that I sort of understand with Eva or Casper or, or um, Simba or something like that. You know, they don't make any money. They no. just like, and it's the same with Zoopla or Amazon. They just like, it's all, I don't really understand it. They somehow build brand and turnover and then one day we'll make profit and it'll yeah. be fine. And everyone believes that. Yeah. And you think, wow, that's very brave. Yeah, it's growth, 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 isn't it? Yeah, but that's maybe the new way. You yeah. know, I can't knock it. That's not yeah. how I understand and build a business. Do we, you know, I used to always try and make more profit than the year before, and I yeah. always did for 21 years, and it's about old-fashioned, but, you know, yeah. profit was important. <laughs> so 21 years, built a business with no external funding. If you could sit down and write three or five of the, the best things you did or the best things you learned, what would they be? Well, it's always about people, isn't it? So it's about employing the right people. So, you know, unless you're going to be... Don't sleep with each other. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um... I've got some stories about that. I nearly blurted one out, but I won't. Uh, no. <laughs> unless you're going to be a brain surgeon or, uh, you know, um, you're an artist or something, you're going to want to try and make money, which is not always about, but it's a measure, isn't it? Mm. People say, like Trump says, you know, money's a measure of yeah. success, but whatever you want to call it. Mm. Um, then you've got to employ people. So it doesn't matter what industry, whether you're in the service industry, you're buying and selling things, or you're international, you're UK, you've got to employ people. So it's all really, if you actually sort of said about entrepreneurs, unless you do something physically yourself, you've got to, you've got to employ people. So how do you employ people? And, and how do you judge them? How do you interview? How do you assess them? How do you appraise them? How do you promote them? How do you reward them, bonuses? You know, I think all of that is massively important on, on how to do things. So, so that, that, is, that is key. So I like, you know, I, I would always, like if I'm interviewing someone, it doesn't matter in the early days if it's a, a lorry driver or a secretary or someone in the finance department, you assume they can do their job. So if someone's in the finance department, you hope they're going to be good at maths and they can do what you expect them to do. They wouldn't have applied, but you have to test that. Mm. But to me, it's more what makes them tick. So yeah. is it, you know, what, what's driving them, you know, What's their personality? I was people are either radiators or drains. Drains are negative people. They mm. hate their, their neighbour and they hate the police and the government and they just negative and they moan about everything and everything yeah. goes wrong and they go sick and they're, mm. they're like drains. Yeah. And then you have positive people that are morning and happy and positive and optimistic and glass half full. Mm. So, you know, and, and you, you, obviously it's a matter of trying to employ radiators, not drains. Mm. And, and, and just 
it's their attitude, not necessarily their ability. So the ability has got to be good, but what is their attitude to life, if you want? Mm. So I would always ask them about, you know, weird questions at interviews, because you can now have your CVs written by all sorts of people, yeah. and you don't really know what they're like from a CV. But you know, at an interview, you, you can't really prepare, but people sort of, this is what they'll ask you, strengths and weaknesses. Yeah. But I would ask them, you know, the most outrageous questions. Like? To just try, well, you know, uh, how much do you think I weigh? Yeah. Or, you know, what would you do if you won 50,000 on the lottery? Yeah. And, you know, if you answer, what would you do with 50,000 on the lottery? Go on there and retire. <laughs> well, yeah, but that's, that's your personality. Yeah. Some people say they give it to charity. Yeah. Some people say they pay off their mortgage. And what it tells me, if they want to pay off a bit of their mortgage, is they're slightly over-mortgaged and they're a bit, a bit of a personal yeah. clash, uh, cash flow issue for themselves. And, you know, we would, you know, so our salesmen used to have to work Saturdays. So, and Saturdays and Sundays are really important. So if you said to a, a, a salesman at an interview, are you happy to work weekends? They would all say yes. Yeah. People at interviews they always the say, job. they'll like yes, to get the job. They'd just say yeah. yes, 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 whatever. Uh, and then, but if you ask them what football teams you support, yeah. they say, oh, it's what Wickham Wanderers or, or Liverpool and something. I said, yeah, I'm a season ticket holder and things like that. And you start to think, well, hang so on. So you know what they're doing every on. Saturday. What are they doing yeah. on Saturdays? Are they really going to fit in yeah. well if they really love their football? So you've got to somehow not ask direct questions. Yes. But you know they're going to give the answer you want them to, but ask a more roundabout question to understand how they tick and, and, and what their personality and soul's about. So in the end, you build a team that hopefully are great and you occasionally get the bad one, but, um, you know, mostly hopefully they're good. Mm. And you keep them loyal and you, you know, you praise them, you look after them and you, 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 you talk about little things. So you give them birthday cards because everyone can give everyone a Christmas card, but you've yeah. got to remember their birthday. And I always say if you, if you really know your member of staff, you know, that you're, you know their pet's name. So if they've got a cat or a dog, you should know their name. Yeah. And then you know that person. What are their kids? Where do they go on holiday? Mm. What, what are they really... Are they happy with their job or not? Because yeah. if they're happy, they're going to work harder, aren't they? Mm. I think there's a couple of things I learned going from an entrepreneur that's got a few staff to, to bigger. And that is, um, you know, I think in the early days, I perceived, as most entrepreneurs maybe do, that you work for me. And there was a day where I realised I can't ever use that card because that's just leverage. Um, And when I actually started thinking, I work for you, i.e. if I serve my staff and look after them, and you've got 70, 700, 7,000, then they go and look after your customer and it's all good. Mm. Um, Would you agree with that? Um, Yeah, yeah, to to a certain extent. I think it's a team, isn't it? So you're part of a team, you've got your role, you, you, you know, they do do stuff, they sort of officially do work for you. Mm. And you know, if they have a different policy uh, or, or different thought process to, to yours, then they can't all be doing their own different things. So they've got to be all streamlined in the same way. And ultimately you are the boss and they've got to sort of toe the line of what you want to do. Mm. It doesn't mean if they've got a different thought process on something that... Um, they're bad, yeah. it just means it's going to be very disjointed if everyone goes off and does their own thing. Mm. So I run hotels now. So I went into, last week, I went into this hotel, I won't tell you which it is, so I'm the chairman, I've not been there for a while, and last time I went there, about three months ago, they had these little glass jars of, used to have them of marmalade and jam, and, and they're tip tree or something. Tip tree, aren't listening, but anyway. <laughs> or, or brown sauce or tomato sauce. And they're all in jars. Well, one is it seems like packaging waste because it's a glass jar that weighs a lot of money yeah. and a top for a little bit of tomato sauce. When I know you can buy gravy catering pots of it. Mm. And he likes to use these glass jars. I don't know, for whatever reason. He doesn't want to put them into a little ramkin dish or whatever. 
And, and I know it's got to be more expensive. I don't really know, but my gut tells me that is much more expensive. So mm. I said, can we not use these glass jars? Can we put them into little sauce bottles, uh, little dishes or something? Um, he says yes to me last time I was there. And then I go back and they've still got the glass jars. So, you know, but he believes that's right. Well, obviously other people do. Or else yeah. The company that make these glass jar things wouldn't be in business. Mm. But I don't. So ultimately... He might, want, he might like going skiing for his holiday and I might like to sit on the beach. He might vote Labour, I might vote Conservative. Doesn't make any of, either of us bad, yeah. we're just different people. But ultimately, if he's got a different view on how we serve tomato sauce, ultimately he's got to follow my way, yeah. ultimately. Yeah. But you've got to do it in a non, in a more persuasive Not way. Not abusing your position. No, basically. no, exactly. Yeah. But ultimately you have to. Yeah. If, it, if push comes to shove, yeah. You've eventually got to say, however nicely, yeah. I'm sorry, you can't use glass jars, yeah. you've got to use that sort. So, so there comes a point when they know your boss, don't yeah. they? You can't be so, I don't know, ultra, so, so nice as a boss. Yeah. It, what's really interesting about hearing you tell that story, you know, you're the chairman, you've got a very strategic role in many enterprises, and you still care about tiny bottles of ketchup. And that, that says oh, to me you're detail. interested in the detail and the big picture. Yeah, I, I, think, I think everyone is, isn't it? I, th I think, um, well, I think most successful entrepreneurs are always interested in the detail. Yeah. So no, no, not all the detail, but I think you've got to give examples that you know the detail. Mm. And, and I would always sort of, I, I would always want to get involved and, you know, there's certain things I'm, you know, I specialise in marketing and sales and, uh, and strategy and that sort of stuff. Yeah. Ask me too much detail about the IT department or the HR department or the finance department. I don't know, they've got to make sure that I understand the basics, but mm. there's certain elements that you do want to get. I think most entrepreneurs are, are fairly similar, but mm. you know, you all have your own specialists, don't we? So is, is the catch-up thing an individual thing and also just to let everyone know you're still watching for details? Yeah, there's part, there's part of yeah. it, is, you, is, is making sure that people know that you, yeah. you've got an opinion uh, and you, you're not just like a bit, bit of a sort of chairman that comes in doesn't understand. Yeah. And you have to make your point every now and then. Mm. But not to do it unnecessarily, but, you know, if there's something that occurs you don't know what it's going to be, um, then, then, you know, you, you just make sure you're not being controlled by your own staff and you're in control of, of all your departments. Yeah. So, people, big part yeah. of the growth of Huge. dreams. Huge. What else? What else do you think made it successful? Um, I, th I think understanding your competition and underestimating competition. So uh, and a lot of people think that they're unique and they're better than everyone else, but you can become very complacent. Mm. So, um, you know, we, 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 we gained, we were the largest bed retailer in the country and things, but, you know, we are very respectful of other uh, competitors, yeah. smaller than us quite often, not necessarily other bigger players. Um, and... Um, and just looking at what other people are doing, mm. what's happening around the world in, in whatever market you're in and, uh, and understanding hugely your industry or market uh, and, and living and breathing that. Mm. So a mutual friend of ours, Gerald, Gerald Ratner, yep. um, he told me many times how he used to obsess about all the competition mm -hmm. um, and famously Sam Walton, who obviously owned Walmart, used to spend yeah. a lot of his time in all the competitor stores mm -hmm. just working out what they're doing. I think sometimes... I hear a lot of startup business owners and they've got this passion. They're like, my product is the best, my business mm. is the best. And sometimes they don't actually learn, look at what they can learn from everyone else. 
Yeah, no, it's, it, different people can be successful in different ways. So it doesn't matter, you know, whether you're Aldi or Fortnum and Masons, you know, they could be two successful businesses and they drive their business in very different directions. But mm. um, you've got to decide what you're going to be uh, and, and not yo-yo all over the place. I think sometimes um, uh, people can sort of chop and change a bit too much with their policies. Mm. So. It's all the normal stuff that is boring, like, you know, watch cash flow and, you know, in all that business book stuff. But I think there's a lot of other things of, of, of understanding your own personal business and what your ambitions are and mm. making sure your other directors or top team are on the same page yeah. and uh, are aligned with your thinking. So is there any one thing you could um, share that you think should be taught in business books but isn't about running a business? Um, i.e. not all the usual things like cash flow. Yeah, but I, th I think a lot of business books are a bit repetitive on, on that sort of thing. But it's, it's just being, um, you know, I, I suppose it's boring stuff, really. You know, all that stuff about working hard and... Um, no, I don't think any more than we've already said. Mm. Do you think having mentors in business is important? Because that's something I haven't read that much in books that are, you know, sort of more technically business-related. Yeah. Certainly when I read autobiographies, of, you've got a huge library there that I've yeah. looked at, and I've got many of the same books. A, a lot of very successful business people have had mentors mm. around. Um, I mean, Bill Gates had Warren Buffett, and, um, you know, if you track back, a lot of successful people have. Have you had mentors? Do you think having mentors is important? Um, I would always look up to people, and um, not necessarily a mentor that you would see, you know, on, on, on a monthly basis who'd give you a bit of advice. But I think you've got to have some heroes, haven't you? Mm. So, you know, I, um, you, you know, like uh, Phil Who's Harris. Who's, well, Phil Harris, who's now uh, a Lord Harris, who ran carpet right. Yeah. He employed me when I was 20-odd. Uh, uh, and, um, you, you know, and I used to work for a company called Hardy's that he uh, owned mm. uh, and then Queensway. And, um, you know, I was, I was a manager, then an area manager for him. And then, you know, he, he, he was just, he's very, he was very dyslexic and he would... You know, he's buying and selling carpets, and mm. we did furniture as well. Uh, and then um, Graham Kirkham, who's now Lord Kirkham, who's, who, who run DFS and, and mm. would buy and sell sofas. Yeah, I say buy and sell because, in essence, that's all retail is. You yeah. buy something, you sell it for more than you bought it for. And sometimes when we would be having all sorts of weird problems and, you know, people would have board meetings about something complicated, I'd say, well, hang on, just, let's, let's just clear the air. All we're doing is we're buying mattresses and we're selling them for more than we bought them for. You know, mm. it can't be that complicated. Everyone needs a bed, you know. You know, most you spend a third of your life in bed. It's like, you know, most used item in your home. Most yeah. people are born in a bed. Most people die in a bed. Mm. Most people are conceived in a bed. You know, it's a big, <laughs> yeah. it's a big thing. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, and it's not too technical yeah. and everyone needs one. So, you know, what, what, what are we really worrying about? Mm. And um, I'm guessing from what you've said so far, you know, being someone who ran a beds business wasn't something you dreamt about when you were five and nine and 12. It was like your fifth or your eighth or your 10th product or business. Yeah, I just, you, you sort of, I think most entrepreneurs don't sort of think of something, get into it. it, it it's all just a series of circumstances bring you into a particular yeah. industry or product mm. or, or service or whatever you do. And it, it sort of evolves from there. And yeah. to me, oh, Wickham's a, a furniture town. And I, and I went to the, you know, the, the furniture college and I 
got a job when I was 21 in a furniture store and I was in charge of the bed department. I didn't actually stay that. I then became an area manager for various other furniture retailers. But, you know, it's, um, it, it's, it's just one of those things. I haven't yeah. planned it. Yeah. Was there a moment in your journey with, we'll come to your post-dreams career after, uh, where you thought, this is working, this is going to be good. Do you remember any moment, I don't know, the trend, the market, where you're just like, whoa, we got something here? Yeah, there were a couple of, um, you know, I'd never, um, when we started, we were selling sofa beds and we got to two or three, well, four stores. And um, we used to have a, a meeting once a fortnight with all the managers. And I was the manager of one store, best store, obviously. And then I had three other managers of the other stores. And we used to meet on a Tuesday afternoon and we just, because it's a bit quiet on a Tuesday afternoon, mm. and we'd all meet and um, we'd talk about what we're doing and things like that. And one of the things is, what else could we sell apart from sofa beds? And it was either going to be sofas as well as sofa beds or beds as well as sofa beds. Seems a bit of an obvious thing. And we just wanted to try and, you know, expand the range. And we thought beds were easier, but when I remember my days when I was in charge of the bed department when I was 21, I was 30 then, and uh, they, they were more rectangular. You could fit more onto a van than sofas and things. Mm. So we decided to sell uh, beds, and um, we ordered some in. But, of course, we were called the uh, Sofa Bed Centre. So I went to my accountant. I said, well, I want to start a company because I was only Mike Clare trading as proprietor. I wasn't even a limited company. Mm. Um, so I wanted to become a limited company as well, and I thought Dreams was a good name. So yeah. it wasn't domain names then on, on, you know, or anything onto a website. It was just company's house, mm. and there was no one called Dreams Limited, which I couldn't actually believe in 1987. But there wasn't anyone called Dreams Limited. And my accountant thought it was a stupid name. He said, uh, "Well, no, why don't you call yourself Claire's Beds or, or the Uxbridge Bed Centre or something?" Um, and I said, <laughs> "That's no, the difference between an accountant and an entrepreneur, yeah. then." But it's exactly, and yeah. and and I always had a vision that I. I didn't want it to just be four yes. stores. I had a big uh, thought, if I'm going to do this, I want to be really successful. And it's sort of, I know it's a bit of a, it sounds a bit of a, a sort of terrible thing to say, but it was like a dream. And I, and I had, and I had, um, and it's the name of the company, but I had always thought it was going to be hugely successful. And it sort of panned out as I thought it would, mm. you, you know, which uh, is generally how, um, you know, my wife would tell you when I was 30 when we started, yeah. you know, it's always really worth it all, can't you get a job somewhere? And I said, <laughs> no, it's going to be one day, it's going to be big, and that's yeah. how it turned out, but, you know, through lots of twists and turns and hard work. Um, and then we became selling beds, and we sold more beds than sofa beds within six months, yeah. and, and then we changed the name to Dreams Limited, and, um, and away we went. So I personally think Dreams is a genius name, and, and I, the reason why is because... Uxbridge sofa beds could only be Uxbridge sofa yeah, beds. Exactly. Whereas Dreams could be anything you want it to be. I know, but Carphone Warehouse, you know, they're still called Carphone Warehouse, aren't they? Yeah. And, and there's some, some names that people have still got that, you know, you sort of think nowadays it sort of works because you get used to it, mm. but, you know. Yeah, and, and it sounds like you changed the name at the right time. Because if you'd have been going 20 years, that would have mm. been... I mean, if Starbucks changed their name now, that's going to cost them a lot of money. Yeah. Um, it sounds like it was the right point in your journey where you were doing well but not so big that it would mm. really hurt you yeah but there's companies like thomas cook they've just changed their name to tui or something you know and people do do a sort that's of a big very brand risky thing, thing isn't it? i think it's a risky mm. thing but you know there we go it's you know it's your brand so yeah i, I was always very passionate about that and dreams it was as easy it's a it's a short name people can spell yeah. it it's it's you know you got the domain names uh, when when that came along and um it's a it's a happy name mm. sort of thing you know yeah Okay, so earlier 
we you started talking about some of the the, the what should we say the the dirtier, grimier things that happen in business that you don't read in books. So can you talk about something that was just like, how did that happen? That was crazy, that was hard, that was difficult, that was insane. You must have some stories about that. Um, yeah, I, I just, you know, you would have things um, where, you know, I'm not proud of the fact that we were on, uh, you, you know, the main story on Watchdog and, you know, I can't remember. Why was, was that? What happened? And, well, you know, we, we would deliver better than most retailers. So it's all about speed of delivery. It's nothing mm. to do with an uncomfortable bed or we'd rip someone off or something was, you know, trading standards-wise wrong. It was just a, our delivery uh, on a few cases and literally 5 to 10% of the cases were longer than we'd said. So if mm. someone said, you know, how long will it take for delivery for sale? Two weeks or something and we'd deliver it in three weeks or sometimes four weeks, yeah. whatever these examples were. But 90% of the time we'd deliver it in within the week or two weeks or whatever we said we would. So um, nowadays people deliver the next day. It's mm. all a lot quicker, but yeah. years back it was like a few weeks. And um, Unless it's an dog, Italian bed, in which case it takes three months. Well, it can do, yeah. Can. yeah. There are exceptions. Yeah. Um, so you're on Watchdog? So yeah, Watchdog want to do a, a, a programme about us and they come to the head office and they... Um, which I really think, this is a BBC programme. I still feel angry about yeah, it. Yeah. They had well, a load use this of... as therapy, get it out. Yeah. Okay, let me... Yeah, yeah, go so, for it. Bloody BBC. Yeah. But, no, but they, I respect the BBC. I yeah. love to watch the BBC news. But they had some of our customers that they'd obviously got hold of and they got them all together outside our head office one evening and they camped tents on the grass verge outside. And the, the implication, in fact, what they said was... Oh, they haven't got their beds, so they've got nowhere to sleep. So they, they, they create they, a story. So, they, so they're all like meant to be sleepy outside head office because they haven't got anywhere to sleep. In actual fact, they put these tents up. It's great sort of film yeah. TV. And then they put them up in a hotel overnight. And then in the morning, they bring them back to these tents. Yeah. And then they say they're outside and then they're filming them in the morning. And it's like a lie. Mm. They didn't sleep in those tents. They, yeah. I know the hotel they stayed in. Yeah. This is the BBC. And it was, uh, but they didn't actually say that, but the um, implication of, mm. of this. So I was really, but in the end, we thought we mustn't fight with these people because it's like, this is primetime yeah. TV. Yeah. And it's good to get our brand out there, but not, <laughs> yeah. not in this way. And, you know, we all went, we went out with bacon sandwiches and coffee in the morning, although mm. they'd had breakfast in the hotel, because we wanted to go along and pretend with their story. Yeah. And uh, it didn't turn out as bad as it was. Um, and, and uh, you know, I, I learned then you mustn't get on your high horse. Entrepreneurs can get very sort of like, you know, I was going to sue the babies. Mm. I was going to, you know, mm. but in the end, you've just got to calm down. And, yeah. But in the end, the lesson is, you know, don't let your customers down. Mm. You know, let the, you know, the customers uh, nowadays, particularly, you know, I work in the hotel business. It's all to do with TripAdvisor, you know, power of the media, social media. You know, it's like massively, you know, you can't argue with that. Mm. So... Um, you know, keeping customers happy is, is what do they say? Uh, treat your staff like family and treat your customers like kings. Right, yeah. And do you think you got that attention because you were one of the bigger players? Because, you know, I'm sure other beds companies were delivering well, long well, times well, as yeah, well. Yeah, no, no, those. But yeah, they, they do. You, you, you go for the large companies. So, yeah. you know, I, I suppose that's natural. I didn't feel that was wrong, but I just felt the way they handled it maybe wasn't right. Mm. But, you know, that's, just, that's and, just how they do it. And how did you deal with it? You know, did it, did it hurt you no, afterwards? No, or no, not, no, not really. I, I, I suppose in, in the end of the day, there was a bit of a wake-up call and we mustn't be complacent. Mm. And we've got to try and, you know, 
do better on our delivery times. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, and I, and I think... I think there was a marked improvement after that because of that wake-up call, but mm. I don't think it was, it was warranted the, the way that happened. But, yeah, so what other terrible things? I don't know. You know, we years ago I used to have pressure from the banks and we'd have an overdraft and yeah. they, would, they would not like our, um, our, our model and they'd get a bit jittery about things when, when times were tough and we'd have fights with landlords on rents and, and, and rent negotiations. Um, uh, and, you know, all sorts mm. of silly stuff, but there'd always be uh, another cha- challenge around the corner. We tried to do other things apart from beds, so we we wanted to sell anything to do with sleep, so we'd have a sleep shop within our bed stores, uh, and that would sell anything from water bottles and pyjamas and sleeping tablets, alarm clocks, Christ, anything to do with sleep. Mm. So we wanted to own sleep as a brand. And sleep, in, in effect, you know, there was... Diet in the 60s and 70s, then yeah. there was exercise in the 80s and 90s, and then sleep has become a thing that's as important as, mm. as diet and exercise. Um, and we thought, why, well, we've got to get on the bandwagon and not just sell bloody pocket sprung bets. We've yeah. got to own sleep as a category. How'd that go? Um, yeah, no, uh, well, it, not as well as it should have done. <laughs> the concept was really good. Yeah. Um, we'd have a 24 hour helpline that we had. Uh, and it was 24 hours, most important. In fact, it's more important during the night. So if you woke up at 3 o'clock in the morning, you'd had a dream about rivers and trees or something like that, and you think, what was that? And some people make a note of it, a bit, they're a bit geeky. Yeah. But we'd have a thing, you'd ring this number, and then immediately, while it's fresh in your mind, you just had a dream, you'd have some person tell you what that dream meant. <gasps> that means... <laughs> that something's going to happen. Or, yeah, 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 yeah. 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 Uh, and, and we would have these people, uh, well, I think it was about two, yeah. that you could ring in the middle of the night that would analyse your, your dreams. Mm. It's, it just is all PR, really, but yeah. we did some great stuff. And we mm. used to have, like, because the salesman used to get bored with our promotion, so we would do really wacky stuff. We would have um, pyjama weekends where all the salesmen had to wear pyjamas. Mm. They, would, uh, they didn't like to just wear pyjamas, but they would wear pyjamas over their clothes. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> and, and little sort of wee willy winkle hats. And, uh, and, and we'd, we'd try and make it f- fun, just mm. for no other reason. we call it Pyjama Weekend. Yeah. Uh, and, and all stripy pyjamas. And um, the salesman, he actually used to break the monotony for them. Mm. And we, we were very keen on, um, uh, in the stores, doing different things for salesmen. So... Uh, we always paid lots of commission on, on different things. So who, and we used to have competitions on a Saturday, which is our busiest day, on, um, on things. So you'd think paying a higher commission would make a, a big difference. Um, but sometimes wanting to beat everyone else. So if there was four or five salesmen in a store, we used to have the manager's bottle competition on a Saturday. So the manager's bottle competition was... He would come in on a Saturday morning at nine o'clock and he'd put a bottle behind the desk and it could be anything. It's meant to be a bit different. So it could be a bottle of whiskey or it could be a bottle of tequila or it could be a bottle of tomato ketchup or a bottle of milk Mm. or it could be a bottle of anything and it's meant to be a bottle and he'd put it there and he'd decide just on that day who could do the most. So who could sell, who'd get the biggest order or who would sell the most amount of headboards or who would sell the most amount of um, what, what, whatever else, any of the extras with duvets or pillows or something. And he would choose something that he thought needed to be improved. And it wasn't the value of the bottle. Um, it was um, just that who's going to win that bottle mm. that day. And it would oh, cost us nothing. Mm. But it was uh, just sort of little, little things like that. Mm. 
Okay, so was there a moment with Dreams where you thought, right, I'm gonna sell this? How did that all come about? Was it a strategic plan? Did someone tap you up? Was it a dream in the middle of the night? Had you had enough? How did it all come about? Um, well, my wife would have wanted to sell the company when we were five years old, 10 years old, 15 years old, <laughs> 20 years old. She always wanted to sell the company. Yeah. And I was sort of like, oh, it's going to be a lo worth a load more in a couple of years. Yeah. So why, I did was... she, why did she want it sold? Well, just because she, you know, I used to work hard and, mm. you know, it's stressful and risky and, you know, and, yeah. you know. But you, you managed to ignore her and stay married to her. Ignore her and stay married <laughs> to her. There must yeah, be yeah. a skill to that. Yeah. But it was... Um, uh, eventually, when you know it's 21 years old, it just seemed a, a, a whole series of things that like a perfect storm sort of thing. So one is it's 21 years old, so that's like it's like one of my children, and it had key of the door and it could fly on its own. Mm. And, and I wasn't being so much; I was more like a chairman. And I think a lot of entrepreneurs, which is another another thing that I believe passionately in, that some entrepreneurs can start a business and do the day-to-day -day operational thing. So I'd be, when we had one store, I would be selling in the store myself. I would do most of the sales. I would do in the evening, I'd do the bookkeeping, I'd do deliveries at the weekend, I'd be driving the van, I would do everything. And that's a hugely, massively different skill. So in 20 years' time, being chairman of the board, uh, negotiating leases with landlords and talking to banks and suppliers with big contracts uh, and, and chairing a meeting, and, and knowing how to do that. And the transformation from being that salesman to doing that uh, and being good at each of the steps along the way, an area manager, just, then I was managing director, then I was chairman, mm. is, 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 is quite transform, a transformation and not all, I think, um, entrepreneurs can go through that. Yeah. And, but a lot can, mm. and that maybe sorts out some people. But when I, I, I said I was chairman, I sort of wasn't enjoying it as much as when I was a salesman and doing the front end. And I, you know, I, I was there in control and, and in theory, everything was great. But um, it, it was a big company and I sort of started to get a bit worried that we were talking about going into Europe and doing lots of other things and, and, and selling totally different products, you know, maybe like sofas or, or whatever. And there, there were lots of things that we, where we could have expanded. And, and then I always thought it was a bit like... Um, uh, what's that woman, uh, the weakest link, Anne Robinson. Yeah. And you bank it and you bank it, bank it. And, if you, and you could lose it all if you don't say bank it. And you have to say bank it. Do you know what mm. I mean with yeah, that? Yeah. And I sort of felt like, you know, it's getting bigger and bigger and bigger. What happens if I lost it? What happens if next year it becomes so big and I've been able to do all these skills along the way? And what happens if the next few years there's such a new set of skills that I've got to do, I won't be able to do it. Mm. So I used to get a bit nervous that I... I sort of doubted my own ability, which is stupid because I'm brilliant, really. Um, and we have to be delusional as no, an entrepreneur, don't we? All entrepreneurs have got to yeah. believe in themselves. So, yeah. no, but I started to doubt a little bit. And I wasn't sort of doing the day-to-day -day stuff. And my wife was still giving permission. And the tax thing was going to change. And, you know, the, the economy was a bit sort of... Yeah. So there was a lot of things. And so, did, so did you then go and hunt out buyers or did you have a contact? No, no, no. It's like, I, I think... That's a, that's a big lesson for entrepreneurs, is that you can run your own business, you can be good at it, but then selling it is like a totally different skill set. Mm. And, and you don't have a practice run at it, you've got to do it. And one of the things, you've got to run the business uh, as absolutely successfully, right at the last minute before you're selling it, because people are looking at the, 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 the trading and the turnover and the profit 
the last week or month or year. Uh, and so you've got to keep that going. And selling it is a big process. Mm. And it takes, take? the, what, you know, nine, ten months, I think. Right. But that was quite quick. Most yeah. people take a year to sell your business. By the time you appoint your professional advisors, because you can't just use your, you know, your normal accountants, mm. you can't use your local solicitor, you have to have corporate lawyers that charge loads of money. You've got to go into the city and be swallowed up by, by these sort of lions that yeah. eat you. And they say, oh, here's another entrepreneur that wants to sell his business. And you put you through this sausage machine that, you know, and they talk all this jargon about data rooms and information memorandums and you know, vendor due diligence and, and, and banks that tree together and do all this stuff. Mm. And um, it, it really is quite, you know, you've got to sort of focus 100% and ask naive questions. And, um, and, and yeah, no, we decided to go through that process mm. in 2017, uh, 2007 and sold in 2008. And what did you learn in that process? What were the big lessons from selling your business? Get the right advisors on board. So, you know, that, that's, that's massively important. So, uh, you know, we fell out a little bit with our financial advisors who were sort of like the estate agents selling it. Uh, and the lawyers turned out to be really good. That helped yeah. massively. Um, but choosing them is quite a process anyway mm. and going through their terms and conditions and agreeing their ratchet and their rewards. Um, and then keeping your management team on board because they're going to leave you and go and work for the new company that's going to buy you. Was there so, worry in the culture that it all might change? Yeah, uh, uh, absolutely. You know, we, we would have doubts and, yeah, but luckily we had, um, had a lot of interest in mm. trading internationally and things like that. How did you, you sell it down? How did you sell it to your staff that, you know, were you very open about it from early days or did you keep them in the dark a bit? So the board knew. So, yeah. we, so first of all, I think in 2007, my wife and I decided... Then we told two or three people on our board that we were going to sell. Then we told all the board. And then we went out to get the professional advisors. And then we never really told all the staff because we were worried that they would leave. Mm. And of course they wouldn't because they'd all be chupied over and they'd work for the new company and we shouldn't have worried about that. But um, I was so sort of paranoid. And you have teams of financial sort of people trawling over your business in your head office going through everything. And... Um, We've sort of had this this thing. I, I made out we were going to merge with another company. Um, and um, I, I had this other company and we had a map of all our branches on, on a map, mm. uh, a, a pins of all where our branches were. And uh, I put pins of all this other company on there. And I said, look, and people used to come into my office and I had a files on my shelf marked up with this other company's name. And then they'd come in and, and they said, Mike, what's going on with all these auditors and people coming down all day. I said, look, there's something coming. I'm not allowed to tell you. I can't tell you. So please, you know, please don't say, just bear with me. It'll all be fine. And, uh, and they'd look at my map. And, they'd look at my <laughs> and I'd say, you I'm said, not saying you anything. Said yeah. over and, there. They all yeah. th- and they all thought we were going to merge with another company right. and things like that, which I thought was a good enough message that they'd be more relaxed about. Not that we were actually selling out to a private equity company. But in mm. the end, their jobs were safe. So yeah. it didn't matter either way, really. Mm. Okay, so let's go beyond dreams then. So you got your money, yep. you've had your private party, now you can tell the world. What did you do after that? Did you have months off, years off? Did you already know what you were going to do next? Uh, no, I didn't have a plan of what to do because in the end of the day, until it's done, it's not done. Mm. And, you know, it could have fallen, fallen away and there were lots of sort of rocky bits just before the deal was done and, you know, 
we could have ended up with a business for another 10 years, mm. you know, so you can't say, right, well, that's it, I'm going to move house, I'm going to do this or go, go around the world or something. Yeah. Um, so when it's done, it is like a bereavement and, um, you know, I went in on that, so we sold it on Friday evening, I went in to work on the Monday morning, I made a speech at nine o'clock to all the head office staff, simultaneous email went out to all the branches and suppliers and press at nine o'clock, phone goes mad all day, um, I'm at work all day, on Monday, in fact, wasn't drawing a salary or being paid, but I was in there on Monday dealing with everything. And mm. then I had a big leather partner's desk that was, everyone had modern trendy furniture, but I had this old fashioned partner's mahogany desk. Mm. And, um, but it was mine, I'd, I'd owned that. And, uh, and I said, well, as much money I got, I still wanted my desk. <laughs> so um, at the end of the day on the Monday, I was gonna take it out during the day. And um, the new managing director, who was my guy that I'd worked with for ages, Mike, you can't take it out because everyone was crying as it was because mm. they didn't. They thought I was going to go in three months. They didn't know I was going that day. It was my last day. I know you build a relationship. You yeah. work with people for a long time. Mm. And, um, and they said, if you take your desk out, Mike, everyone's going to be like, obvious. oh, yeah. So um, I waited to the end of the day and we got a dreams van and my managing director and I lifted this mahogany desk on the mm. back of the van and that was it. And then Tuesday morning you wake up and that's it. I've got to go to work. Yeah. So you haven't got, you know, and as you say, you've got a massive, great bank balance uh, and, and no job. And it's and it quite sad, to be honest, because mm. you've got a lot of your life and connections and routines. Um, but, you know, it's not a bad thing, you know. It's, you can accept it, you know. It's not yeah. like a curse. First world problems. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, uh, no, we took all the... Because the, the, in the end, I've got four children, and you, you neglect a bit of that because it's a busy time in your life and you haven't got any time for holidays and doing all this. So um, we thought, well, I've got to concentrate on the four kids. I've neglected. Um, and we took them all to New York. Um, and we went to a first class. And, um, and we went, I remember, we each, gave, we each had a suitcase. We went out with six suitcases, there were six of us. And we come back with 12. <laughs> we, had to, we had to buy suitcases out <laughs> there. And they just went shopping in New York. Yeah. And that's, you know, they were all sort of young and they just wanted to go buy clothes. Mm. Yeah. I said, like, OK, buy clothes. Yeah. How much do no, Buy what you want. Yeah. What's it? Not what we're, well, I go mad, but <laughs> yeah. buy a lot. And yeah. they were like, they loved it. So yeah. that was our sort of, sort of thing. And um, yeah, then, then we travelled a bit and then thought what we wanted to do. And then, you know, the economy sort of crashed and we had a lot of money and we had to make sure we didn't lose it because mm. we had to invest it somewhere. So yeah. then we had to get sort of wealth advisors and people that invest money. And that's a whole nother bloody story and mm. nightmare and, uh, and difficult thing to deal with. But, um, you know, we sort of got through that. Yeah, and if you don't mind saying, where did you start investing your money? What did you get interested in? Well, we got into into unusual properties because just because I like, um, you know, we bought a monastery off the Vatican, we bought uh, castles in Scotland, we bought forts in the middle of the sea off Portsmouth, um, we bought chateau in Wales, we bought really, and we called it amazing venues, and we wanted to let them out for exclusive use parties right. and weddings and corporate. So you know, mm. not necessarily as hotels, but just where people could hire the whole thing yeah. and have a big event, whether it's a conference or, mm. uh, as I say, a wedding or someone's 50th birthday party or something. Yeah. And did they do so, all right? Uh, it's okay. Yeah. I'm a better... So we've turned them into hotels now, and I've sold a few, but mm. and we've turned them in mostly into hotels, uh, proper hotels, where yeah. you could just... Two people can just let a room. So I'm a better retailer than a hotelier, I think. <laughs> but, you know, that's... You know, it's been a bit of a journey with that. But yeah. I didn't put all my money into that, but that was... That's taken a lot of a lot of my time mm. over the last few years. Uh, and did you get some useful lessons there? Because I think it's quite easy for entrepreneurs who do quite well to think they can do everything. I know, yeah, 
Yeah, no, you can't. You've got to know what you can't do. And what no, you know yeah, good exactly. And, yeah. and really, I had the opportunity to buy Dreams back five years after I sold it uh, for 10% of what I sold it for. And, 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 I, and I should have bought it back. Yeah. And now it's back to where it was. And uh, that was my biggest mistake, not to have bought it back. But I didn't buy it back because I got into these hotels and I thought, well, I won't have the time for both. Yeah. But I should have ditched the hotels and bought the company because, uh, you know, re retail and, and, and that sort of little tiny niche section. So I think entrepreneurs specialising in a little tiny niche thing, uh, whatever it could be, um, is, is, is really good rather than trying to be mm. too massive. Um, and, you know, to me it was just beds and mattresses in the UK and it was a funny little market and I knew it and, mm. and I should have got back into it. Yeah, but say, you say it's a funny little market and you sold it for 222 million. So well, that's great proof that you can take one niche and really do well out of it. Yeah. Yeah, but I think there's lots of other niches out there. Mm. And, and, you know, the world's changing very fast, so there's all sorts of things. So someone said to me the other day, well, do you realise in 15 years there won't be petrol stations? Yeah. I said, what do you mean no petrol stations? So he said, well, everyone's going to have electric cars, definitely in 15 years, and batteries will be longer life anyway. Mm. And everyone charge at home and charge at work. Yeah. And you won't be stopping, and no one will be buying diesel or, or petrol. And there's all these sites on big main road mm. uh, positions, and but they've got these tanks and they need to be decommissioned and filled with sand and, yeah. and concrete and things and there's a big business in that so mm. should, should I invest in that and I thought oh yeah well what do I know about decommissioning stations sounds a good thing but yeah. there's you know, you know what, what is on the on the up and on you know have you really got some vision that no one else knows about mm. very unusual for someone to know that but sure. you can get into a rather I always think the furniture industry is pretty boring getting into mobile phones or getting into some high-tech app is really much more sexy and exciting but a lot of people in there clever people are doing that yeah. but if you go into some basic industry that there's still a need for mm -hmm. um, and you and you're better than your competitors yeah then that's all you've got to be you haven't got to be a rocket scientist yeah and, and that's also something important in the, this whole new world of social media and technology and apps there's a lot of these things being built that people don't need people need to go out of bed and sleep yeah. every night and there's nothing wrong with doing something that's a basic human no, need. No, exactly where Jamie Waller's uh, sort of uh, is about with his business things is just do a basic business yeah. and also I don't think entrepreneurs should ever get into a business or I don't like to invest now unless I understand it mm. someone can try and explain something and it goes a bit over my head well I wouldn't want to get involved so you yeah. know, you've got to uh, you know either be clever enough to understand it or don't get involved mm. and then m more recently hotels has been a thing of yours has it yeah, so uh, not, not so much now. I'm just trying to unwind and get out of that. And, and I'm more sort of trying to understand the stock market a bit more and understanding investments at a, at a high level, not yeah. being so hands-on with some of them, but just, mm. you know, uh, you know but maybe being non-exec director of a few businesses and, you know, just having a, 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 a portfolio of a few things. Mm. Um, what did you learn in the hotel business? Um, that, you know, it's all down to people, really. You know, mm. it's all people again. It's staff. And then it's customers. Mm. So they're both people, aren't they, in the end of the day? Yeah. It's having the passion and, and it's about, you know, wanting to succeed and inspiring other people and, uh, and sort of, you know... And there'll always be problems. One of my, one of my expressions, and I, I sort of developed it a bit, but it, 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 someone sort of started the expression. And it's about... Um, Life isn't about waiting for the storm to pass. It's about learning to dance in the rain. Mm. And, and it's just accepting that there will always be problems and people want this 
lovely sort of utopia idea of a perfect business and everything always going smoothly. And, and it's not. Most, yeah. of, most of success in business is being able to overcome all the shit and the problems, mm. uh, which it's not how it's painted in a business book. Yeah. But that's the, the measure of success over someone else, really. Mm. Very rarely does it go always smoothly without competition, without new regulation, without cash flow problems, without, you know, staff leaving that, you know, that you don't want to leave and all those sort of things. Mm. What are you interested in doing now? Where do you spend most of your time? Um, I'm trying to do a little bit less, but I'm always very busy. I just can't say no to things. I, I love, I <laughs> well, I'm love glad, otherwise we wouldn't be here. So. Well, I, I, just, I do like to get involved in, in and understand, you know, I, I enjoy business and, and entrepreneurs and, and people, you know, I, I think there's not, we talked about it just before we started filming, mm. that, that people ought to, uh, you, you know, children and, People don't understand, even if they don't want to be an entrepreneur and start their own business, I can't believe that school children are not really taught about profit and loss mm. and, and about how a business works. So even if they haven't got a business, if they go to a restaurant and eat a meal, they've got to understand that they, that restaurant's got to pay rent, it's got to pay tax, it's got to employ staff, and there's got profit and loss and there's a margin. And, and, and just those very basics will make that person, whether they never start their own business, more savvy in the world. And they yeah. might want to start their own business. But that, none of that is taught. But you get taught, you know, the Battle of Hastings, yeah. you know. It's random, 10, 1066 it? and all yeah. of that, you know, is it really important? You know, and nowadays there's all that math stuff when, you know, and you've got Siri, you can ask Siri anything. Why do you need to know the capital of Peru? Just mm. ask Siri. Yeah. You know, that, that wasn't the case when I was at school. Mm. But why do you need to know now um, when you've got, so, you know, technology's changed. Mm. What you do need to understand is a little bit about how, how the world or the government or politics or businesses work. But mm. it's not enough taught. Mm. But there we are. Is there anything maybe other than that in the world that you really would like to change and you think is wrong? Um, yeah, I, I think it's a bit, bit of a, a nanny state. I think, you know, there's so many things go too extreme. Uh, you know, some of this uh, health and safety and, um, you know, um, just some government policies. They, they start with the best intentions and the basics are correct. Uh, and, you know, I don't know, equality on everything, you know. And I saw something on Brexit television today. So, you know, you can choose to be a different gender without, if you want. So, you know, and uh, men are going into women's changing rooms because they say, I, I have an, a right to be a woman if I want, but they're not even dressed as a woman. And he said, well, the world's gone mad, basically. Mm. And, you know, you I'm keeping my mouth very shut here. Got <laughs> no, it was on yeah. breakfast television wow, this morning. Yeah. But, but in the end, there, there's a lot of policies that governments come up with and, and they just get a little bit too extreme. Yeah. And uh, so anyway, yeah, don't get me too much onto no. some of that. <laughs> okay. Well, um, money. Do you think mm. money makes you happy or can you know buy you happiness you've worked hard from the bottom up mm. and you've had big pots yeah. of money what's your relationship with money and happiness um no no it doesn't make you uh, uh happier I, I think obviously if you really haven't got any money at all uh, and you're you know and you're struggling and you can't buy the basics of life and i think everyone says if you earn up to seventy thousand pounds a year anything up to seventy thousand pounds a year um makes you a lot happier. Mm. So every 10,000, so if you earn 20,000, then you earn 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, yeah. every one of those 10,000 increments in your salary 
make you happier. Um, and when you go, start to get over 70, it doesn't make you happier because basically you can afford mostly the clothes and the holidays and mm. the things you want. So you've got all your basics covered. And then all it is is luxury stuff, better jewellery, better holidays, but, there's, but they're not, doesn't really make you happier. Mm. I let someone cleverer than me work <laughs> that all out. But, but in, in theory, that, that I, I believe in that. And I, you know, um, my happiest times in my life haven't necessarily been since I've sold dreams, you know. Mm. They, they were before dreams times. Yeah. So uh, uh, what, what is happiness, really? It's friendships and, um, you know, f- feeling uh, fulfilled and being able to sleep at night. And, mm. you know, it's not just all about money, is it? Mm. I think money is just a measure of, you know, um, trying to prove something to someone else, I think. Mm. You know, I don't understand about cars, really. Mm. I'm not a great sort of believer in that and, and you know. Fancy watches. <laughs> <laughs> well, we, we all have our own motivations, <laughs> don't we? Um, where can we follow you? What you know? What projects are you in now? Is there anything you want to tell the world that you're doing? Are you, are you writing books? Are you? Do you have social media profiles? I don't know anything. No, not really. Um, I, I run a, a, a. I've got my own charity called the the Claire Foundation, and the Claire Foundation. Um, Quite often, you know, we want to put something back into the world, and you sold your business, you've got a lot of money, so you think, well, what can I do? Mm. I, love, I love politics and things, but I don't actually want to get into politics, but I follow politics. Yeah. Um, but I wanted to, you know, I didn't have a, a charity that where someone had died or one of my family, and I felt, oh my goodness, I got to get this children's charity or this mm. cancer charity or home, you know, starving people in Africa. So I didn't really, but I wanted to do something, and I thought, well, and I looked at the charity sector and lots of people, when selling business for a lot of money, they come sort of knocking at the door looking for a bit of money, mm. which, which you sort of expect and understand. Um, but I got very focused in and that, that charity efficiency. So entrepreneurs are generally quite efficient because they want to make money. Mm. But charities, you know, they give their money to beneficiaries, whoever that might be, and they raise money through, you know, rattling tins or charity dinners or grants or whatever they get their money in and it goes out to their, you know, um, you know, donkey sanctuaries or whatever they're giving their money to. And in between, they've still got their HRIT departments and their, and their sort of administration process. And generally, and it has to be said it's general, that most charities' administration process is not as efficient as, as businesses because they're too nicey-nice. And, you know, believe me, most people that work in charities, and I'm sort of doing quite a bit of time with this, they're... They're kind people, mm. church going, be love, lovely to have as your neighbour. Um, and, and they won't nick your pencils out of the stationery cupboard. Yeah. And they're nice people, but um, they, they're not very good at writing a business plan. Mm. And they can't negotiate their rent, or they can't negotiate anything else, a deal, mm. uh, because they're too nice, because they love everyone. Mm. So, but in the end, that's not doing a good service to the charity, because they're not making as much money for their beneficiaries they want to give their money to. So the Clare Foundation tries to help charities become more commercial and efficient right. uh, and, and sort of teach them to be a bit more like that in a, yeah. in a sort of gentle, nice way. Mm. And we try to try and make sure there's not charity duplication. So, you know, when you were saying your thing you want to try and do yeah. is, is very much like Peter's, helping mm. entrepreneurs. Mm. And then so is a bit like uh, Prince's Trust. Uh, and then so is a bit like someone else and a bit like someone else. And you sort of think, well, let's not talk about your entrepreneurs. No. No, that's there's eight, 800... Yeah. Charities for blind people in the UK. Right. Yeah. There's 192,000 charities in the UK. 800 of them are to do with ch- uh, blind people. And you sort of, they've all got trustees. 
They've all got little head offices, they've all got brands, they all do a bit of charity collecting and, and all of that. And you sort of, they all really care about people that are sort of some way partially sighted or old people or, you know, deaf and partially sighted or whatever their little specialisations are. If they all cared about it, they should all amalgamate, but they're very precious about their brands. Mm. So I'm quite sort of, we're trying to help charities sort of merge and, right. uh, and, and you sort of collaborate a bit more. So forgive me for taking a, a moment to get your advice here myself. So as, I, as we talked about earlier, I just set up my foundation. Yep. Um, actually did it in the last calendar year. It took months of all the legals and everything else. I underestimated how long that would take, mm -hmm. but that's okay. Um, uh, and I'm very inspired by helping young entrepreneurs, underprivileged entrepreneurs, yep. um, or people who want to start and scale their own enterprise. Um, so you say try and avoid duplication. So... As an example, would it be wise for me to focus on, say, two to ten-year-olds? Does anyone do that? Well, the first thing I'd say to you, with all that time you spent setting up that charity, you've just asked me, does anyone focus on entrepreneurship for two to ten-year-olds? Yeah. But do you know the answer? No, because I start now no. getting perfect later, and I just no, thought, no. Like, yeah. But, but the best thing would have done, and most people, there's 80 new charities started every week right. in the UK. Yeah. But most of those 80 new charities already represented by someone doing that. Right, yeah. And people, it's a bit of an ego thing. You want your name on your charity, don't you? Well, well I know you don't yeah. want to say it, <laughs> but <laughs> no, you no, do. And I so always do get I. therapy in these no, listen, podcasts. And so does Peter Jones want his name. Yeah. You put your name on well, your you charity. You put your name on yes, your Yes, yeah. and so do you. <laughs> yeah. And that's a little bit of an yeah. ego thing. And you want it now. But is it not also, but, but like, actually, I want my really, name really to be here when I'm dead. You know, I don't yeah, want to... I know. Yeah. Well, well, you know, but buy a big statue or, or do, <laughs> yeah. do something, you know. Uh, yeah. uh, but in the end, what about uh, have a street named after you. Yeah. But in the end, people, quite often, um, people start charities because they, they believe in that and they, mm. they want to do it in their own way. And quite often with their name or something like that. But actually, there is already a charity doing that. Mm. So you could just give your money to a charity that yeah. looks after... I've been doing that for years yeah. and I got sick of it. Yeah, and yeah. I wanted to do something where I could yeah, control... Yeah, no, I agree. And, and, I, and I feel yeah. the same. And you, you've got more, more control of that destiny of your money that you put into it. So, mm. yeah. But that's when you eventually end up with a load of duplicated charities. Yeah. Uh, and, and it's not that efficient. Mm. So your charity is like the advisor to charities. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. So what should I do? Because I like, I've, I've formed a vision and we've raised you know, a decent amount of money already that's mm. there ready to go. Um, but I still have time to... You just see, there are others, and, and not necessarily, um, but you can share a, a back office with them. So you can have your own front-end brand and raise monies and, and do things, but, but in the background, you're all caring about young children being entrepreneurial, and, and you can share best experience and best mm. practice with that so that you can actually... There's more people that you'll be able to help. Mm. So don't keep your knowledge that you've learned how you help young people to yourself, share it with another charity that's doing it and they'll share their stuff with you, mm. but you can still have your own brand. Sure, because you were talking about Peter Jones, which I've, I've been a mentor of mm. and I know you're involved in, but that seems to be more a sort of almost like the alternative to sixth form college and beyond. Yeah, yeah so yours is different to Peter Jones, so yeah. I'm not saying... But, but I'm, I'm not sure trying to defend myself, I just yeah. want a dis discussion. Sure. Yeah, okay. yeah. <laughs> you don't believe me, do you? <laughs> um, yeah, so like... Like you said, at school, when you're, like, I'll give you an example. When I was 14, um, or might have even been 13, you know, you're thinking about GCSEs, you're thinking about where you want to mm. go. And when you were in the top set of my school, you got moved into geography, which is being taught 
geography in French. Mm -hmm. And that just was so... And I also learned religious studies and things like that, which I've never done anything with ever again. And that moment, I'm like, why am I learning geography in French? It was just yeah. like a complete alien concept to me. But I, did, I wasn't learning about practical economics or money management, budgeting, you know, and well, all these yeah, kind no, of things. And it's that kind of stuff I want to teach really young kids. Yeah, but there are people that want to know about history and, and study the classics and want to learn Latin. But, but geography and not French. No, I agree. It's gone to extremes. Mm. So, so, you know, there, there needs to be, if someone's really passionate about learning Latin, then let them learn Latin. Mm. I did Latin, actually, for a few years at school. Well, God, is that, what on earth is the point of that? Mm. And, Have um, you had a conversation with a Roman down the street? Well, no, or, you no, know, whatever it is. Yeah, but there we go. Do we want to get into education? You know, maybe that's, you know... Mm. That, that's a, it's so many things in the world that you, we want to try and change or why are there wars or why is there you know yeah. what's happening with you know Donald Trump or, mm. or Putin or what's happening in North Korea mm. you know? but you have to focus it in somewhere where you can yeah. make a difference don't you I think so yeah. I don't think try and be all things to all people no. I think you know uh, whatever you enjoy most is, is what you'll be best at isn't it yeah have you written a book uh, no, I've got loads of notes. I've got a whole autobiography. Yeah, I've got an autobiography file. So, yeah. and, and in the end, I sometimes put little notes in it and I've got my list of the, the chapters and the contents. Mm. But that's it. So I just think, yeah, no, I will do it. Once I do less, I'll mm. write an autobiography. But why do entrepreneurs write autobiographies? It's a bit like why entrepreneurs start charities. Yeah. Because you don't ever make a lot of money. So one is, how much money would I make? If I wrote a book, how much time would it take? It takes shit loads of time writing this yeah. book. I get an, a, a ghostwriter to help me write it, and I'll publish it, go publish it, and I'll design the cover, and it'll all look lovely, and I'll be really proud. <laughs> How much money? Am I really going to make a lot of money? No, no one's really going to buy it. And, like, and all I'm doing it for is for my grandchildren mm. and for my friends. I've written an autobiography. Mm. And, but, but it's not really a money-making thing. Mm. So you've then got to ask yourself, but I would love to... But you also said it's not just about money, didn't you? No, I agree. Yeah. So if my grandfather who I didn't really know, had written an autobiography, I would have loved it. Mm. I could read all of what he thought about politics, where he worked, what he did, what his family life was like, and, and I would have loved it if my, auto, my grandfather had written an autobiography. Mm. So I'm sort of writing it for my grandchildren and my great-grandchildren. Yeah, which, and it's not for business, it's not for, be for a great to make money. It? Yeah, so absolutely, yeah. and why not? So, you know, mm. that should be something I should do. Yeah. But you've still got to be forefront of your mind while you're doing it. Yeah. Yeah, I think a lot of the very successful um, entrepreneurs who write autobiographies, they, they seem to do it at the right time. Like Jamie Vardy wrote his. He yeah. couldn't have written it at any other time other than when Leicester won the league. Mm. Uh, and that was a crazy story. And so maybe a lot of it's about timing as well. Yeah, always timing. Timing is important in all business, isn't it? So. Mm. Mike, look, it's been a real pleasure. Okay, no problem. Thank you very much. Yeah, excellent, thank, thank you. you. So thanks for listening. Myself, Tom and Harry, who Tom and Harry are the main guys behind the scenes in the podcast. I'd like to publicly thank Tom and Harry for all the great work you do. We took a trip to Isle of Wight recently, and there's one, well, there's more than one, but there's one very famous, possibly even infamous person who lives on the Isle of Wight. You've probably guessed who it is because of all the crowdsourcing of questions I did in the disruptive entrepreneur community. It's David Icke. Now, uh, we got agreement to do a podcast interview with David Icke, and I, where possible, love to go and meet them in their home or their office or wherever they want on their location because I think it makes for a much better interview. It's, um, it's, it's more comfortable for them. I love to see the different environments that people live or work in. We did a road trip. I mean, it took us, what, 
uh, 15 hours there and back. I'd never gone on the ferry to the Isle of Wight before, so it's it quite an experience. And I was really on the fence if I was going to do this. This was normally with a guest, I just know if it's a yes or a no. I always go for guests who I really admire, who are very disruptive or on theme with the concept of entrepreneurs or disruptive entrepreneurs, or a bit of a left field. And to be honest, in, in many regards, David fits and ticks all those boxes, but crosses some of those boxes as well. So I thought, you know what, this podcast is about you. So I put a few questions out on LinkedIn and a couple of our communities, and I must have got, what, 400 plus comments, replies, uh, and I was shocked because I thought it'd be a 50-50 split, yes, no, uh, and pretty much 80-odd percent of people said, do it, it'll be great, it'll be amazing. A lot of people came through saying that some of his alternative theories have gone a bit mainstream and they love some of his work, not all of his work. So we thought, you know what, this podcast is called The Disruptive Entrepreneur, let's disrupt you, let's disrupt ourselves, and let's do it. We did it, and OMG, L-O-L-W-T-F. It was, I don't, know, I don't even know what word to say, so just, um, it was the longest podcast we've ever done by a mile. It was like two hours, it would have been, a, it would have been a week if his daughter hadn't uh, come over because they were going out for dinner. Um, we went through a lot of theories. I had about 15 questions, an hour and a half in, we'd covered the first one. I soon realized in the podcast that I wasn't going to be driving the content of that podcast. He was, so I thought, let's go with it. Um, I managed to get some good quick fire ones at the end as well, which I think you'll really love. He went on a massive rant about freedom of speech, and actually a lot of it was very well researched, and I would say it's definitely worth listening to. He talked a lot about perception versus reality, how we're controlled by the media and you know, the, uh, the powerful Illuminati or whatever. He didn't go into some of his most radical theories, um, which I'm, I'm kind of relieved about, but he definitely shocked enough. So I'm just letting you know that coming soon, we don't normally do coming soon trailers for our podcast, but this is all we've also decided to do this for the 250th episode. So keep booking your diary. Sit down with your coffee, your ayahuasca, your alternative medicine, whatever you have, um, with some friends to listen to this one. Ah, he also talked about his ayahuasca experience, which I've never asked someone on the podcast. It, it is just the most crazy, interesting. There are some moments in that podcast which are so mind-opening. Uh, I know you'll get some massive aha moments. At, at points, he repeats himself quite a lot. You know, you've got to push through. Um, but I just so think it's worth it. There's so much gold in there. And hey, look, I just want you to let me know what you think about it. So on the 250th episode of The Disruptive Entrepreneur, we have the infamous David Icke. <laughs>